0: Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Reading Life, your weekly look at the Louisiana literary scene. I'm Susan Larson. This week we'll be talking with Teresa Tuminello-Brader, whose new book is Letting in Air and Light. Teresa Tuminello Brader is a New Orleans native who only left home for four years to go to Marquette University in Milwaukee. Not an uncommon thing, actually. (laughs) Hurricane Katrina, as it did for many writers, gave Teresa a sense of urgency about her own work. Also not an uncommon thing. And inspired her to tell a fascinating New Orleans story in her first book about her art forger uncle. It's a hybrid memoir novel titled Letting In Air and Light. Teresa, long time coming, but this book is finally here. Welcome. Thank you. I appreciate that. So this is a memoir combined with a fictionalized, not fictionalized story about your own family. That's right. It's mostly
1: memoir. That's how my publisher describes it. I describe it hybrid memoir fiction, but, you know, what are labels? I did the form because... I had family stories, but not enough to fill out, inter- to make it interesting about my uncle, about his past. So I took what the little I knew, the little I found from research, which was pretty amazing, some of the stuff I found in the archives at the newspaper, and uh, fleshed it out with my own ideas of what I knew about the personalities involved so I could tell an interesting story. But by the time I get to my own memories, it's less and less fictionalized and becomes more memoir. But in between I, I make sure the reader knows what is true sure. and mm-hmm. what is not, and I reflect on what I knew then versus what I know now.
0: So it's like any story of family secrets. You had to feel ready to write it. Right. I had first I had to discover the main secret well let's talk about the main <laughs> secret and and let's talk about this art forger uncle
1: right so my uncle william toy is fairly infamous now in the art world mm-hmm. if for people who know he was um a forger of clementine hunter paintings he apparently which well he was arrested in 1974 i would have been 12 i did not know of that arrest until i found out about his second arrest and indictment in 2010 when I was getting on to close to 50 years old.
0: That's a long time, yeah.
1: Yes, and it was uh, kept, amazingly enough, it was kept by my parents, in particular my mom, for all that time.
0: They hid the newspaper from you.
1: That's my guess. I, The newspaper was a big deal in our house. I a
0: could tell. I love deal. that. That went right to my heart.
1: <laughs> and I can only imagine that they had to have hidden hit it from us the day he was arrested, the next day after mm-hmm. he was arrested. And um, I do. I imagine it. I imagine what—that's one of the fictional retellings is I imagine what could have happened that day.
0: And I believed it. I do, too. So, I mean, there <laughs> well, you thank go. thank you. <laughs> so tell us
1: about William Toy. He was the oldest child of five children. My mother came after him seven years, I believe, after so, because of the age difference, I guess I I I knew him as an eccentric uncle, very mm-hmm. eccentric. But I and I knew he had some mental health issues as I got older. My mom shared that bit with us, but um, I just thought of him as this, you know a, just an unusual person and a fascinating, mysterious person to have as a, an uncle. And what did you think he did all that time? Um, he did a lot of different things. As someone told me, he was quite industrious. Um, <laughs> they were talking about the amount of forgeries he put out, but um, I suppose yes, I knew he had designed. He was a self-taught architect. He was self-taught with just about everything. Yeah. Um, he even left high school early, and he, I came, I came upon evidence of him taking some, uh, maybe a. Uh, teaching a course at Loyola, and he had put in there that you know he had graduated from Loyola, but he really hadn't. Right, he had taken some classes, I believe, but he had never graduated. So that was the kind of thing he did. So he did a lot of things. Um, he d- designed our our house uh, when I was a young, very young child. Uh, my dad kept the blueprints. He designed my his my dad's parents' house, so he could he. He he was not trained and as a. the plans were perfect. Yeah, they were beautiful. I have, I have my grand, uh, uh, my mater- uh, paternal grandparents' blueprints still, and they're gorgeous. I mean, you could hang them up and, and as a he painting. He was
0: musically talented too.
1: Sure. Um, I always knew that when when I was a kid and we'd go in the house, there was all these opera records, and even though they were in my grandparents' side of the house, I understood that they were his uh, records. Why they weren't on. His side of the shotgun house, I'm not sure. He conducted an orchestra. I don't know that he ever played a musical instrument. I have no evidence of that. But he conducted an orchestra. I saw that. I know that was true. That wasn't made up. <laughs> Do you think he could play a musical instrument? Um, I imagine. Um, there were no musical instruments. i instru- to think of faking
0: conducting. Yeah. Anything, but... There
1: were no mu- musical instruments in their house, at least not that I know of. There was the record player. Mm-hmm whether he had something on the other side of the house i have no evidence of that so i don't know how he became a conductor he just he put together various groupings of musicians and right. made up made shows and conducted these shows whether that you know beyond that i don't i don't know
0: and he made remarkable models too
1: yes and that's a major theme or imagery in my book and it's also where the title comes from. So he, at a young age, developed and designed sets for the opera. And those were put on stage. My mom had stories about that, about how she was one of the extras. Mm -hmm. And um, we heard that story a lot growing up. I saw those. I have a vague memory of seeing them. I don't know if I remember or if I was told the stories often that I think I remember. So I've seen those buildings that he designed and... So talk about that first
0: sentence in the book and how that relates to all those buildings.
1: Oh, so when I was a child, the family story goes that in his workshop he had the opera set models or models of of any kind of buildings, I'm not sure. And he would have me sit sit on his lap and I poked out the windows and the doors with my finger. And um, that was the family story. For whatever reason... I was told, "Oh yeah, that's what you did when you were a, a toddler," and I felt like I had a special job to do that—to poke out those windows. Now I didn't realize. Later, I realized. Well, he had them drawn out, and I, it was easy to poke them out. You know, he had them, uh, knifed out, right. and I could just poke them out.
0: But still, he trusted you to do it, right?
1: So, whether, so I don't. I feel like that was his. That becomes his only family story that he knows about. I'm the oldest of of uh, numerous siblings, but that I feel like was his only family story. And maybe because I was the oldest and he had wandered away with other activities that he didn't have any other family stories or he became volatile later and my mom kept us away. That's pure speculation on my part um it sounds like something she would have done though so i feel like that was the only story he had about his nieces and nephews right so um it became something that my mom told a lot and so um yeah and so poking those out not only gave me a metaphor for the overall an overarching metaphor for the book but um it it was a way to get in, literally,
0: <laughs> to get into Air, the story. Like windows, <laughs> so, yeah, and it did. I mean, you know, it made me think that for a, a young girl to see that kind of devotion to art and to take part in the process in a way he made possible for you is really kind of a wonderful thing.
1: Yes, there is that. I suppose, yeah. I guess i i uh, I was always interested in art of all kinds mm-hmm. and that likely was one of the entry points along with his his my mom's other sister who mm-hmm. who Talk also painted a little painted. bit about helen helen is my mom's younger sister uh, the only other girl in the family and she is also my godmother and she is well known i, th- I feel very
0: well known in yes. the
1: poetry community i feel like people still know her even people younger than me she was also important in, in my artistic awakening. Yeah. She She's the one who actually painted and, and gave paintings to me as a child. I have a, a Mary Poppins painting that she must have given me for like my second or third birthday, which might have been around the same time as I was poking out windows and doors. So <laughs> so I'm not sure if, you know, this was a cumulative thing because, the you know, I also was given not only the... Mary Poppins soundtrack at the same time I was given the Beatles Hard Days Night soundtrack uh-huh. at the same time and I believe that was a present from both Uncle Bill and Anne oh, Helen wow. together and that became very formative in my life. My mom took me to see the movie which I don't remember but apparently I was very excited about it. So Anne Helen also she also gave me a painting for my high school graduation and in between I confiscated her book that had a, well it wasn't her book, it was an anthology but it had her poem in it and it was given to the family, and I was the only one interested in keeping it. So I remember taking it from the family shelf and putting it into my, my shelf bookshelf in my room. And in high school, I read not just her poems, but all of the poems. And uh, I have markings, dates on them. To, so, so, so she was very formative.
0: But nevertheless, I mean, this is still rock bottom, a difficult story to tell. Yes, because it... It involves
1: crime. Yeah. It involves mental illness. I never wanted to gloss over anything he did. I know he did a great wrong and great harm to the to both Clementine Hunter and the victims that bought his paintings thinking they were hers.
0: How many forgeries did he create, do you know? Um the
1: speculation is that he's there's over four hundred and something because two binders were found it might even be close to 500 two binders were found that that he had kept of with pictures of what he had you know his fakes so there are plenty probably still out there and um there are other forgers apparently of her work but he was the most prolific and there's the added specter of race of course with all that sure yep and he was what? he's a white man was a white man right. she's black woman poor black woman and when he started as far as I can tell, when he was arrested in 1974, from my research, what I could tell is that is when she first became more known outside of Louisiana. Yeah. She was getting recognition from like LA and New York, and some of her work was in shows there. And that's right when he started doing his forgeries. He must have done it because he knew they would sell. Right. Because she was, I mean, why forge anyone else unless it's going to sell? So um, he definitely took advantage. Was already there. Yeah, and 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 take advantage of someone who's well loved in her area, getting getting known in other areas, and not likely to fight, be able to fight back. Maybe Mm -hmm. even was part of his plan too.
0: If you're just joining us, my guest is Teresa Tuminello-Brader, whose new book is Letting an Air and Light. Now, a lot of people think, well, okay, I think anybody could write a memoir. You know, you just sit down and tap into your brain and start writing. But it's not like that. You have to research your own life, as you were saying, and you found some real surprises. Surprises? Not necessarily for your own life, but...
1: Right. Sure. Lot. Surprises... Not all bad ones either. Oh, of course not. Um, just coming across uh, something as sweet as um, when my mom and Anne Helen took swim lessons at Audubon, and their names were listed as these girls or these children are going to be taking swim lessons during the summer, and it's just so funny because they used to like list not only their ages but their addresses oh, wow. in the newspaper. But then it it becomes another way, and I. It's not like this isn't included in the book because it becomes irrelevant. But it, it reminded me that my mom had a serious uh, water phobia. Like she oh. she did not overcome that till she was an adult. And it was why she made sure that we had swim lessons as kids. So all I can think of is, well, she was signed up for these lessons, but she mustn't have taken them. Her fear of the water had to have. Maybe it didn't go well. Right. So that could become a whole other yeah story, so it was things like that that I found that maybe I couldn't incorporate, but it added to my memories, my awareness of what my family was like. I do mention my mom having a dreadful fear of uh the air raid drills in mm-hmm. school when i when she was a kid, and I compare that to my fear of, of uh, when we would have fire drills so but it adds to what was quote unquote normal mental health and what was which my uncle displays what was my you know real truly mm-hmm. troubling mental health that was that he didn't overcome or had difficulties overcoming.
0: So what did writing this book do for you? You know, it's moved you tremendously along your writing journey. I think.
1: Um, yeah. It for, for one thing, I never thought I'd write a memoir. I mean, it was fiction was my is my reading. Since I was a kid, I mean, I know, Kate. I know you love a good novel like I do. <laughs> yes, um, occasional, you know, nonfiction if it read like a novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was interesting. I had started, and the other interesting path I feel like I took is I had started writing about my grandparents' house before I even knew of my uncle's crimes. Their house, just as a child, I must have known something was mysterious about it. It was just so different yeah. from my own. It was a typical New Orleans house, but going into it from a suburban house, which I was more used to right was just fascinating to me. It wasn't as comfortable. and I didn't know what was on the other side of the sh- other the wall into the the side my uncle and his wife lived in. So I started writing about it one day, and I didn't know what I was going to do with that piece of writing. I just wrote it as me as a child in that space. I even thought, well, I'm going to fictionalize this one day mm-hmm. and use it as I don't know what. So I left it alone. And then when I knew heard about my uncle and time had passed, first I was in shock <laughs> that this was my <laughs> this was my relative. Then I had to, um, well, then my brothers and I did research into what had been kept from us. Yeah. It was all on the internet, <laughs> not all, you know, and we were like, how did this not? How did we know make notice? our way? We, so we, after we did our research and much time had passed, I'm like, "Well, should I? I, I feel like I should write about this. Um, fictionalizing it was how I started, and then that didn't seem right because it's the story was too sensational. Why turn these people into fictional characters? So it just didn't seem. It just yeah. didn't seem. Like the the thing to do, and so then I opened up that piece of writing that was describing my grandparents' houses when I'm a child, and it just seemed like my way in to write to the to writing it as a memoir.
0: So many great memoirs are centered in houses. You know, I think of Sarah Broome's Yellow House. This is like one of those great New Orleans house books too, because you can see it. I've had
1: people tell me this is such a New Orleans book. Yeah, and I didn't set out to necessarily write that in New Orleans books, but that's where they lived, <laughs> yeah, right down the street from Nick's library too, which yes. I liked a lot. Uh, and that's that's a good memory for me, walking to that library from my grandparents' house.
0: You haunt libraries. That's where I first met that's, you in the library. That's so true. Isn't that's that great?
1: So and, yeah. We have great libraries. Let's have some we memoirs do. of those. We <laughs> do. And I have other library stories. So I lived in Mid City. As an adult, single mom with my two kids. And we would sometimes go to Nick's, though I have a memory of more going there by myself than yeah. going with them, because I don't think there's a lot of children from, in my memory now. Maybe there are. But we would go to the Smith Library, because we were right in the middle. That was before yeah. the Mid-City Library was there, way before. And so we would go to Smith. So with I would go with my kids. And that was just one of our things to do and one of the great things to do. So.
0: So many great things. Well, we've been talking with Teresa Tuminello-Brader, whose new book is Letting in Air and Light. You can meet her Saturday, December 16th at 2 at Blue Cypress Books, or before that, Thursday, November 30th from 7 to 9 at Cavalier House in Denham Springs. Teresa, congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it all. As we near the end of the year, it's time to look back on some of the highlights. Three of our most beloved musicians, Britney Spears, Erin Neville, and Lucinda Williams, published memoirs in 2023, revealing chronicles of creative, personal, and spiritual struggle. All three tell stories of family life, the difficulties of life on the road, and the toll it takes on a body, the challenges of managing business and artistic sides of music, and the unbridled joy when you get it right. In The Woman in Me, Britney Spears makes her Declaration of Independence indeed, and readers responded by making this book number one on the New York Times bestseller list. From its opening line, as a little girl, I walked for hours alone in the silent woods behind my house in Louisiana singing songs. We are reminded of the enormous contrast in Spears' life and the difficult path it was from small-town singer to superstardom and the perils of living life in the public eye. But as Spears comes to recognize claiming her life in all its highs and lows, freedom means that I get to be as beautifully imperfect as everyone else. And brava to Michelle Williams for her beautiful audio version of this book. And tell it like it is, Erin Neville does just that facing down demons and angels in his long musical career. He credits God, music, and four strong women with saving his life. The four women, his mother Amelia Landry Neville, his sister Athelgra, his first wife Joel Rue, and his wife Sarah Friedman, are rendered with love and care in this memoir. It is also a rich tale of spiritual struggle, and Neville describes his devotion to St. Jude, the patron saint of lost causes. Whenever I was in trouble, Neville writes of his mother, she brought me to St. Anne's Shrine in Treme, where we would both crawl up the stairs on our knees, saying a prayer on each step, until we got to the statue of Jesus at the top. Neville's book is a clear-eyed rendering of what it was like to grow up on New Orleans' mean streets, with constant temptation of crime and drugs, and the experience of being harassed by police, some of whom later apologized, and eventually doing his time at Angola. Along with that, readers are treated to a backstage pass at memorable concerts and recording sessions and the joy of the brothers singing together. Aaron Neville is 82 now. Readers will rejoice in the music he's brought us over the years and recognize the cost of that beauty. In Don't Tell Anyone the Secrets I Told You, singer-songwriter Lucinda Williams writes about her formative years in New Orleans, quoting Neil Young's line about growing up in Canada, all my changes are there. The daughter of poet Miller Williams, who taught at Loyola University for a time. Lucinda was uniquely poised to appreciate the music of the city, hanging out with David and Cranston Clements, going to see Jimi Hendrix at Tulane, eating red beans and rice at Buster Holmes, listening to Sweet Emma at Preservation Hall. It's telling that in the New Orleans photos of Lucinda, her smile is wide and easy, especially joyful. But moments of joy are balanced with struggle in this memoir, the challenges of growing up in a dysfunctional family with an alcoholic mother, the professional difficulties of gaining control over her career, and finding love. Lucinda Williams offers hard-won wisdom for living the good life, beginning with, Read. You should read Bukowski and Ferlinghetti. Read Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. Listen to Coltrane, Nina Simone, Hank Williams, Loretta Lynn. Sunhouse, Robert Johnson, Howlin' Wolf, Lightning Hopkins, Miles Davis, Lou Reed, Nick Drake, Bobby Gentry, George Jones, Jimmy Reed, Odetta, Funkadelic, and Woody Guthrie. And who can argue with that? Here's what's on tap in the literary life this week. Mary Beth Broussard reads from Ensign's Gumbo Weather, Saturday, December 9th at 11 a.m. at Garden District Bookshop. Jane Golden discusses Ensign's A Woman's Guide to the World of Sailing, The Dreams and Realities of Cruising, Crossing, and Competitive Racing, Saturday, December 9th at 2 at Blue Cypress Books. The Spice Poetry Series presents Holly Melgard and Joey Yarosalgacine, Saturday, December 9th at 6 at the Saturn Bar. Creative Community League presents Dr. Deshawn Taylor discussing and signing Undue Burden, a black woman physician on being Christian and pro-abortion in the reproductive justice movement. That's Sunday, December 10th at 4 at Blue Cypress Books. Blue Cypress hosts the Lucky Bean Poetry Night, Monday, December 11th at 6.30. Dalt Wonk discusses and signs Dangerous Gardenias, The Plays of Dalt Wonk, Tuesday, December 12th at 6 at Octavia Books. The Willow School Creative Writing Program presents a showcase of students from their Certificate of Artistry Creative Writing Program, Wednesday, December 13th at 6 at Blue Cypress Books. Friends of the New Orleans Public Library announced special holiday hours for their book sale. Carriage House Books Behind Ladder Library is open every Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday from 10 to 2 through December 23rd. And Algiers Books at Algiers Regional Library is open every Saturday from 10 to 2 through December 23rd. Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books, with major support from Rouse's Markets. Additional support comes from the Hellis Foundation, the Jefferson Parish Public Library, and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in the reading life do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The theme song for The Reading Life is by Matt Perrine and Sunflower City. The Reading Life is produced by George Meyer and is a production of WWNO. You can listen to us anytime or subscribe to our podcast at WWNO.org. And you can email us at The Reading Life at WWNO.org.